Well, hello again. Welcome to another edition of Two Ways News. I'm Tony Payne. And I'm Philip Jensen. And great to have you with us again as we think about how to apply the gospel to every aspect of our lives and our ministries as Christians. And in today's episode, we're going to be particularly thinking about pastoring and pastoral ministry. It's one of the perennial questions, I guess, in many ways of Christian ministry. What is the nature and role of the pastor or of congregational leaders or of overseers? And Philip, you wanted to talk about this uh, on this episode because you've been thinking about pastoring recently and in particular interacting with some pastors about some of the issues that they've been facing as pastors. Yes, it's it's a perennial problem, you're right, but it's becoming, I think, more acute as the word pastor is changing meaning in English. And yet we have it as a deep word within our Christian community. And so uh, it's one of those ones where it's like the word faith or repentance. Those words have changed meaning in the community, but they're very Christian words. They're very important words for us as Christians. However, it's hard to think the way the Bible thinks on these words when nearly every other usage that we have of it is different to the Bible's thinking. So it's hard for us to think about what pastoring and pastoral ministry really is, not only because the word has changed and we tend to read that word back into the Bible, both the way Christians use the word and the way the non-Christian world uses the word, but there's also our ecclesiastical traditions. There's what we've come to think of as the pastoral office. Yes, there really are differences denominationally, and, and even those are changing. So Anglicans in my youth didn't call their ministers pastors. It was Baptists who called their ministers pastors. But of recent times, um, the emphasis on pastoral ministry has meant that Anglicans are also calling their ministers pastors in, in places. Uh, the, the Presbyterian models of eldership and the teaching elder and the Anglican ideas of bishops, priests and deacons. And even the word deacon, it, it means a different thing to uh, Anglican than it does to say, a Baptist uh, or a Presbyterian. Uh, some are ordained, some are not ordained. Some, I mean, So we're using the same words but meaning quite different things. Well, before we dig into maybe some of the biblical passages and maybe try and untangle what the Bible's talking about when it talks about pastoring or eldership or oversight, let's talk about some of those sort of presenting questions. Uh, one of the reasons you wanted to talk about this issue today, you were saying to me, was that as you talk to pastors, one particular pastoral question that they're grappling is, with is, is what's the place of counselling in the role of the pastor? Because for many people, certainly for many people in their expectations of what pastoring is, counselling plays a very important part in that. Yes. Uh, counselling is, is an activity and an industry, frankly, which has arisen through the 20th and into the 21st century. Um, both in terms of psychology, social work, psychiatry and the least. And so there is a concept of the counsellor who has certain expertise, certain skills and promises certain outcomes. And so people have, I like what you said, expectations. Both the pastor has expectations of what he'll be able to do and people have expectations of the pastor as to what he'll be able to do in terms of counselling. And I think it's a big mistake, frankly. 
I don't think we are counsellors in the modern sense of counselling. Because the modern sense of counselling, as you're describing it broadly, is is someone whose task it is to kind of be your coach and helper to solve your problems and improve your life and get out of the difficulties you're in and get to a better point personally to solve your personal problems. Especially um, the subconscious background to your problems, the the things that you have inherited, have been developed, uh, the traumas you've gone through, whatever it might be, that will help you unravel how and why you think and act the way you do now. It's a very technical and important activity that they are engaged in, but it doesn't seem to me that's what the ordained ministry is about. What is the ordained ministry about then? What is a, being a pastor about if it's not about that? Well, fundamental to, to counselling is one-to-one. I mean, you can have marriage counselling one-to-two, but it's about individualism. Whereas fundamentally to being a pastor in the Bible is being a shepherd. And a shepherd who only has one sheep has a very limited future. Generally, you need to see more than one to have any future, really. Um, what you do is you shepherd a flock. Uh, now, if you shepherd a flock properly, you'll care for each individual within the flock, but your aim and goal is the flock that you are shepherding. Yes, you might leave the 99 behind and go find the one, but you don't spend all your time with the one. You've found the one so as to bring the one back into the flock. The activity is not fundamentally a personal activity pastoring, it's a community activity. And so at that point, it's very different to counselling. It reminds me a little bit of Jesus' exhortation to Peter at the end of his gospel when he's talking about what kind of thing Peter's going to do in the future. It's feed my lambs, protect my sheep. It's, yes. it's, it's the role of the shepherd to care for, to protect, to guard, yes. uh, to feed, to lead out into pasture That's right. uh, the flock. That's right. And... To, to judge the flock. So that is, if you remember back in Ezekiel 34, which lies at the background of Jesus' teaching about being the good shepherd, the good shepherds actually don't allow the fat sheep to trample over the, the lean sheep. He will judge between the sheep to, to make the flock work together. And the, the, the word for shepherding, in the book of Revelation, it quotes the psalm about Jesus will shepherd with an iron rod, which is hardly non-directive Rogerian counselling. It's got to do with he's the leader, the judge of the flock as a whole. But I think the fundamental words are the ones that you've picked. He's the protector. He's the, the one who leads people to the green pasture. He feeds. Now, that's what we do with the word of God. It's by the word of God that we govern and care for the church. It's by the word of God that we feed the sheep. And so the pastor in the Bible is a Bible teacher. He's a Bible teacher who is responsible for or works among a group of people who has some responsibility for that group of people. In some ways, you could say his his task is coordinated or calibrated to this group of people. Yes. Uh, and that's very important, I think, to maintain. Uh, as the word pastor just becomes a sort of a general word for leader or a general word for someone who's in charge or a church worker is a pastor, which is kind of how the language has shifted. 
uh, in English anyway, in, in many of our circles today, it means that our sense of, of what the task is of pastoring, that it's coordinated to a group of people, tends to diminish. And I guess what I'm thinking about is it's become common in many churches, both in Australia and the UK and, and the US, to see pastor as just a generic kind of church office title. You can have executive pastors, youth pastors, worship pastors, you can have maturity pastors, mission pastors. Part, it's just a person who has a responsibility for a function or a particular role in the church structure. Yes. And somehow that kind of loses some of the sense of what the Bible's talking about, I think, when it speaks of pastoring. Yes, I think that's a silly usage of the word and a confusing usage of the word. But added on, though, is the individualism. That is, people will say, he's not a very good preacher, but he's a very good pastor. Now, what do they mean by that? They mean... He's personable. He's personal. He's, he's good on individual work. He's yes. good on one-to-one work. Now, I've got nothing wrong with doing one-to-one Christian ministry. But when you say he's not a good preacher, that is, he's not a good teacher of God's word, but he's a good pastor, the word pastor is being used quite differently to the way the Bible does. Because by the teaching, by the preaching to the congregation as a whole, is where pastoral work is done, rather than in the counselling room. And so when they talk about, as you say, you know, he's a, he's the music pastor. He's the what? What is it they're supposed to be doing? It's not a congregation musicians. Is is he looking after that flock? And why do we have a flock of musicians? Would uh, flock be the right collective noun for a group of musicians? No, I wouldn't I, have thought so. What is the collective noun for a group of musicians? Uh, everybody other than a drummer. A cacophony of musicians. <laughs> what would it no, be? I don't know. <laughs> Like a murder of crows. Yes. Um. <laughs> we won't pursue that. We won't pursue that one. Yeah, okay. But, but you don't... So what is it? He does really good one-to-one work amongst them. Is that what it is? Or is the administrator... I'm sorry. It's using biblical words unbiblically. And that is always a danger. That is always the danger of misleading people to think you've got more authority than you have and have expectations that are quite different to what the Bible's expectations are. One of the interesting kind of wrinkles in this in, the, in terms of using the terminology and the words in the way the Bible does, it's really interesting to me how often, for example, pastoring and pastor language in, in Scripture is verbal. It's a task. Yes, yes. Um, in fact, it's, I think it's only in Ephesians 4 when it talks about the pastors and teachers. I think that's the only time in the New Testament it's used as a noun for anyone related to church roles. Everywhere else, it's the thing that people who are overseers or people who have responsibility, it's what they do. They shepherd. Yes, that's right. I mean, the, the 1 Peter 5, uh, where he talks to the elders as a fellow elder, and he says, shepherd the flock, pastor the flock. That, that's what you're to do. But it is, it's to pastor the flock of God uh, that you're involved in. Because that's what shepherds do. They look after flocks. And it's a verb. It's an activity. It's not a status. It's not a title. It's not a... And so I, I don't actually like the word pastor, even in the old Baptist sense. I'm sorry, my Baptist listeners, but I don't think... I don't think that's a helpful thing to be calling uh, Pastor Jensen. Um, it's an activity that I may do, uh, but it's not my title in life. 
Do you think this is a case more generally? Let's broaden it out because there are other sort of words that are used like this in the in the Bible of this kind of zone of activity. You've got elders, you've got the task of oversight and overseers. You've got words like that are translated leader, those who lead or have supervision and so on. How do you think about it more generally? Uh, if Is there a better title? Is there uh, a definitive title? How do you think about it more generally? Uh, well, in, if, in terms of titles, I think servant or slave are the titles we should go. They're both, of course, also verbal in their character, um, that you serve and that you enslave yourself. But they are better words. And so... In English, that's the word minister. But, you know, I was in the lift the other day at home and a new man in our block of units introduced himself. We introduced ourselves to each other and he said, what do you do? And I said, I was a minister. And he asked me which portfolio. Uh, <laughs> which portfolio? <laughs> and which side of politics are you on? Yes, yes it was, uh, yes. <laughs> so the only place he ever heard the word minister... Political office. Yeah, political office. Um, I... I I demurred for a while, but I decided I'd be honest with him. In fact, you have to say minister of religion these days to indicate minister. Mm. And Australia has so many governments and so many ministers, and the newspaper only talks about them. So even that word, which is a better word, uh, I think, it captures what we do. We are servants, but I think that's lost as well. You mentioned overseers. That, of course, is the word that becomes episkopos, from which we then get Episcopalian and which leads somehow to bishop. Um, I don't know how the jump happened there, but that's the meaning of that word. But that's an activity. It's an activity of oversight that any father has in his own home. It's an activity of caring for your household, administering your household. And so you know, I, I've noticed in 1 Timothy 3, you know, it says this saying is trustworthy, it's verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. But when you look at the Greek, the word office is not there. It's if anyone aspires to oversee. It's sort of to oversight, isn't it? Oversight. He desires a noble, not office, he desires a noble task. It's a work. Yes, it's a work. You see, we, we shouldn't be ambitious for ourselves and our position and our authority but we should be ambitious to serve to do the task and so it's a funny verse as it's written here in the i'm using the esv but you'll find it in the other translations the same thing happens that instead of a dynamic ministry an activity it's turned into an institutional ecclesiastical office so the emphasis is on the function and the task of overseeing this group of people or overseeing the household of God. As you oversee a family, um, so you oversee and have that kind of function within, uh, within God's people, within the church, the household of God, the congregation. He must manage the, his own household well. He's one of, the, one of the qualifications for choosing him to manage the household of God. The household is the concept that's there in 1 Timothy 4. So how does this concept of, of oversight, oversight as watching, uh, of teaching, and of course, again, he's the real key kind of ability he has to have is the ability to teach. 
most of the rest of the things here are aspects of his character and his ability, oh, and his ability to manage, to oversee, to... To, to care, though. You see, verse 5, For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? And God's church is called God's household in this chapter. And so you manage by caring for your family. That's what oversight is, caring. But it's for the household. See, the bishops, the bishops belong to the association of churches. They're in different congregations every week as they preach in different places. It's the local minister who actually has the oversight care of the congregations. I've been in churches where no bishop has appeared for two or three or five years. He's hardly managing or caring for our church in that regard. Nothing wrong with the job he's doing, but to think if that job is this job, well, that's not what this passage is talking about. It's not that person. So how does the task of oversight that someone is given or appointed to or made responsible for, how does it relate to the idea of eldership? Because we often think of elder as another one of these offices or titles or kind of things you're appointed to. Yes. It's interesting that 1 Timothy 3 doesn't use the word elder. And yet when people think of eldership, this is one of the chief packages they go to, especially the qualifications for the elder that is there. Now that's because in Titus 1, there is the elders are appointed to oversight. And so the word elder and overseer go together. But the elder is what the person is. The oversight is what they do. And the elder is an older man. That's what an elder is. And so when you come to appoint people for oversight, one of the chief qualifications is he's an older man. I got appointed as an Anglican to be an elder when I was 25. I'd only been married 12 months. I had a very small household of me and my wife. And um, my experience of managing it well was not great at that point in time. And that was not the basis upon which people were appointing me. It it was a nonsense to use that word. Uh, It's like the Mormons. The Mormon missionaries are all called elder. But they're 18 or 19. They've just left school and they're away to university. And... So whenever I meet elders, uh, Mormon elders in the streets, they, they, they have their little name tag called Elder Jones or Elder Smith, and I say, oh, you're, you're elder. Are you my elder? You don't seem older than me, so how can you be my elder? What, what does it mean? I mean, it's, it's a nonsense term to have a 19-year-old elder. But the New Testament is saying one of the people who should be appointed to oversight are those who are old enough to have a household where you can see they are good at doing it. That's who you have as elders. I don't mind appointing a minister at 25. He's a servant. But to appoint an elder at 25 seems to me to be a a misuse of the words. So elder is something you are. You're an older person, an older Christian. And those older Christians who have experience, who have demonstrated their godliness, their blamelessness, their care and management of their families, their qualifications and character and ability, you select some of them and call them to the task of oversight. Yes. It's not as if every older man, just by defin- by virtue of being an older Christian, is therefore 
a ruler of the congregation no, or somewhere because there are some older men who are quite inappropriate to a point. They might be given to too much wine or they might be on their third marriage or they might be... There's, there's reasons why you wouldn't appoint this man, this elder, to this task. But you don't appoint him to be an elder. He either is or he isn't an elder. You appoint the appropriate elder to the task of oversight. And so I guess this is why, in a sense, in the culture of the New Testament, in the linguistic kind of conventions of that time, the group of older men who are appointed to rule a certain synagogue, for example, or to rule the Jews, are called the elders or the yes. elders of Jerusalem. There's That's the right. scribes and the Pharisees and the elders. Yes. That is, those older men who've been given responsibility. Yes. It doesn't go with our egalitarianism. But it does go with the Bible and it does go with creation and normality that the older leads the younger. And so when that doesn't happen, it's extraordinary. So John the Baptist, though he's first, he recognises that his cousin who's coming after him is actually before him. But that is such an unusual thing it's made mention of. Uh, likewise, the younger of the Jacob and Esau, the younger God chose rather than the elder, is an extraordinary thing. It's it's like I'm preparing some talks at the moment on Exodus, and it's the firstborn who are going to die because the firstborn have a special place within the family structure. Now, we, we may not do our inheritance systems today like the ancient world's inheritance systems, but it's still striking how different firstborn children are to subsequent children. Birth order is a still a factor. Is this why, in a sense, since we're talking about Timothy, why Timothy's relative youth is an issue for him to think yes. about? Um, and given that he's got quite a significant authoritative role within and among the eldership, somehow he's almost like the Pauline protege or, or delegate in, mm. in the congregation mm. there. He needs to be careful of his youth. He needs to not have people look down on him for his youth. He yes. needs to be careful how he relates to the older men and women and so on. It is normal to be looked down upon because of your youth. And while we may, in our egalitarian, not believe such things, it's still true in our own society. Let me bounce off what you're just saying then. For many people who are going off into ministry, we're having our conversation here at Moore College, which is full of young men and women, not many of them I would call elders, many of them in their late 20s, early 30s, heading off into full-time gospel service. How does what we're saying about the nature of oversight and eldership and service and ministry relate to them and to young people who are heading off into ministry? Well, I think there are, firstly, there are, are years of serving. I mean, there's always the extraordinary um, Spurgeon. He led large churches when he was a very young man. Um, but Spurgeon was not normal. <laughs> it was a special gift of God to us. Normally, you would expect people who are coming out of theological training to do the work of ministry before they are inappropriately placed in charge of family congregations with people twice their age. Sometimes they need to be, and therefore that verse that you mentioned, don't let them look down upon you because of your young. And how do you avoid that? It's by a maturity which is not normal amongst young Which people. is beyond your years. Beyond your years. And a posture towards those who are older than you that's very considerate and gentle in 1 Timothy 
yes. as well, to be careful how you relate to the older. Do not rebuke an older man harshly. Mm. The older I get, the more I like that verse. Uh, just because you are in the Christian ministry does not then cancel the differences between men and women, older and younger. In fact, the created order is now being reinforced by ministry. There's a lot more to discuss in all of this, of course, but what we've been saying about the nature of the task, that most of the language in the New Testament around congregational leadership and oversight is very dynamic and functional. It's it's about the job you have to do in the congregation that God's given you in the household, not so much your office, your title, the structure of hierarchy and so on. What lessons do we want to draw from that in terms of how we think about pastoral oversight ministry today? Love. It's not office. It's not authority. It's loving the people that is required of us because that is the model to be set. And so we teach the Bible. We speak the truth in love is what we are to do. And that means we will honour our elders as elders. And it means that we will treat younger men and younger women differently because of our love for them. So in backing away from institutional positions, it doesn't mean that we ignore the created order that sees elders and youngers as different. In 1 Timothy 5, having told the elders what to do, he then tells younger men what to do, which shows the age factor is a real factor in interpersonal relationships. And that should be reflected in the way in which we treat people. So that's an important part of the task. But then it's to understand the dynamism is preaching and teaching of God's word. And when you see your activity as being because you love people and you've got this word pastor, which now means counsellor, that you are a a cheap counsellor, that your care for people means that when you meet them in their problems, you will somehow solve their problems. You should be referring them to people who are trained in those problems, not trying to do that yourself. And you you cease to do the work of pastoring the flock when you are consumed by the individual psychological problems of people. I also think one of the implications of, of seeing kind of how functionally the New Testament talks about congregational leadership It's a task that is to be done. By seeing it in those terms, it also helps us to prevent kind of driving a wedge between the pastor and the the elder and the bishop who's gone to kind of a pedestal who has an office and the rest of the congregation who are kind of like just the recipients of their ministry. The only people who minister are the ministers. That's a nonsense. They've got the title, after all. They've got the title. That's their job. They should be doing that. And in in a materialistic world, we're paying them to do it. When one another language of the Bible is so strong, as you've researched and seen yourself, Tony, and know better than I do, that the importance of the ministry of every Christian to every Christian, which is reflected in the ways in which we care for a flock. I think it's actually the best way of understanding theologically what 
congregational leadership is, that a congregation has a responsibility for each other yes. in the New Testament, to speak the truth in love to each other, to bear one another's burdens, to yes. go after the person who is straying and restore them, to rebuke one another, to admonish each other, to exhort each other. It's all each other. Yes. Uh, as a congregation, as a member of the flock, you have a responsibility in love to the other sheep. Hmm. And what the leader does, the function of leader, kind of comes out of that function of the congregation. Yeah. He oversees and leads and exemplifies uh, and trains and equips the congregation for that task which they are doing with each other. Yes, and to say, oh, every task that needs to be done needs to be done by the pastor is a fundamental failure in understanding the nature of the Christian life, isn't it? Very much so. Well, we've reached a bunch of issues there as usual, Philip, but hopefully said some helpful things, dear listener, about the nature of what it means to be given a task and take up the task and responsibility of oversight, of leadership, of eldership uh, within a congregation and how that reflects the purpose of congregations as bodies of God's people to care for and build one another as we look forward to the time when we are gathered around uh, the throne, uh, that time which in spiritually is already true and already real, but which we long for and pray for. Uh, Philip, as always, um, I'm going to get you to pray in a moment to conclude, but uh, listeners, if you have any questions about all of this, and I'm sure you probably do, please feel free to get in touch. Uh, send me an email at tonyjpain at me.com, or if you're getting the email version of this um, podcast, and I'd encourage you to sign up for that, it's a very convenient and good way to get hold of what we do, you can just hit reply to the email and let us know your thoughts. Uh, but Philip, how about you pray for us as we finish? Okay. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that in sending your son, he set such a model for us, enslaving himself so that he might serve us and calling upon us not to be like the world in ruling over each other, but in serving one another. So, Heavenly Father, help us to serve each other, especially with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that through him and through that word of him, men and women's lives can be transformed as we come into the salvation that he has won for us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.